And let us also turn in our Bibles for a scripture reading to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 to 11. Let us hear God's own word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So far the reading from God's word, and may our gracious God himself add his blessing to it. Dear brothers and sisters, I wonder how many of you have maybe heard uh, the summary of the letter to the Philippians, um, or kind of a nickname that's given to it as uh, the joyful epistle. I've often uh, come across this. People speak of Philippians as being the joyful epistle. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, and talks uh, even a fair bit about his own joy about the Philippians. And yet, to speak of the, uh, the letter to the Philippians as simply joyful epistle overlooks uh, quite a few problems that the church in Philippi was dealing with and quite a few problems that uh, the Christians were, were encountering. Now, Philippi, the city of Philippi in Macedonia was a Greek city, Greek-speaking city, was also a Roman colony. Uh, most citizens there, most people living there, rather, would have been citizens of the Roman Empire. It was um, unique in that way. There were not that many uh, cities that were Roman colonies. And it had a significant Jewish population, a significant Jewish population from which the new converts uh, to faith in Christ uh, have come. Yes, some Greeks, some of non-Jewish background uh, came to faith, but quite a few from uh, the people of Israel. And now the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi in a context in which he says the Christians in Philippi are engaged in the same struggle, the same conflict that the Apostle Paul himself had. Paul, being Jewish, um, had a conflict with uh, those of his fellow countrymen, the people of Israel, who 
rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And now the church in Philippi was engaged in a similar conflict. There was pressure from Jewish people, from Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And at this time in the first century, that unbelieving group, uh, unbelieving, rejecting Jesus, that is, of course, as the Messiah, and, and therefore rejecting God's Savior, rejecting God himself, ultimately. That group was more numerous and was more powerful. Um, the believers were were suffering often then for confessing Christ. There would be conflicts in the family. You can imagine some, like the Apostle Paul himself, would have been disowned by their families, would have suffered, as Paul said, suffered the loss of all things. Um, business relationships and all sorts of connections would have been interrupted because those who believed in Christ would have been rejected by the more powerful establishment group who rejected Jesus. Often we read of this in chapter 1, verse 28, they would have been, the Christians, Christians in Philippi would have been terrified by their opponents, would have been frightened by the more powerful group that would have sort of pressure over them to abandon their confession in Jesus and return to a religion without Christ. And in this situation, it's not surprising that conflicts arose in the church and the church was was divided, divided on how do we respond to such pressure, such opposition. For some, the commitment to Jesus and his good news was quite shaken under under such pressure. From chapter uh, 1, verse 27, we see that Paul has to, what Paul is exhorting them to do would have been things they, they were not doing. So Paul says, Philippians 1, 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. So what do you think they were not doing? Not standing fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel that went out the window. There was no longer standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel. They were instead terrified by their opponents, no longer united in one spirit, one mind, one love, one faith. Instead, deep divisions. The divisions in the church in Philippi manifested themselves and primarily these two things that Paul calls in chapter 2, verse 3 in our passage, selfish ambition and conceit. And selfish ambition is positioning yourself for advantage, and, and in their particular context in Philippi, for, for advantage vis-a-vis -vis the, the synagogue. So you, you act then no longer with a singleness of mind and, and purpose of confessing Jesus and following him, but you think, well, how could I maybe compromise and maybe tone down my witness and even what I say about Jesus so that I can still advance financially in this world. What do I need to do? Where, where could I cut corners? Where could I compromise? And then there was conceit. Uh, conceit is sometimes translated as vain glory, thinking too highly of yourself. And in, in their particular context, you can also understand it in, in this way. When there is pressure to turn away from Jesus, conceit would show itself. And how do you how do you view what's your attitude 
to those who are suffering for Jesus' sake. How do you view Christians who, because of a consistent witness, are now paying for it? Socially, relationally, economically, the Apostle Paul, when he was in prison, he's writing this letter from prison. In chapter 1, verse 16, he, he says that there were even some who were preaching Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, but supposing to add affliction to his chains. And I think in, in Paul's case, it, it would go then like this. People could say, well, all of you simple people who are following what the Apostle Paul taught, look at where it landed him. The man's in prison. Do you end up like this? Do you really think this is what Jesus, what God wants for us? There is a way to believe in Jesus and to confess him that doesn't require this kind of shameful um, fate. You don't have to end up in prison. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul, Paul tells Timothy to not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the testimony of Jesus, or of me, his prisoner. Timothy would have been tempted to be ashamed of Paul. Paul's in prison. There is an, a kind of illustration from secular literature. I'm not recommending this book without reservation, but it is a, a profound work, 1984, the book 1984 by George Orwell. Toward the end of the book, I'm trying to uh, summarize it so that I'm not giving away the whole storyline. If you ever want to read it for yourself, again, before warned, it's not a Christian work, it's a secular book. But the main character at one point is in prison. And he is beaten up by, by a guard. Winston uh, is the main, main character. And he's pushed back into his cell. And he's lying there on the floor, disgraced. He's just been beaten up, bleeding, bruised. And, and he's kind of ashamed of himself. And he gets up and looks around to see whether his humiliation has led others to despise him. You see somebody humiliated and the sinful part of the human nature leads people to despise the humiliated one rather than come to their aid. And sadly, it would have been possible to have the same thing happen among Christians. Conceit toward Christians who were suffering for the sake of Christ. This is what was happening in the church in Philippi. And so the Apostle Paul has to tell them, be united, be united in, in humility. In humility, consider others of more value than yourselves. Don't just look out for your own interests, but look, look to their needs, to their interests. And Paul knew that this lack of humility, the part of Christians in Philippi toward one another, came from their lack of their humble trust in Christ, ultimately. Their, their trust in Jesus was shaken. It was shaken. Uh, the Jews, who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, insisted on keeping the law of Moses in all of its fullest extent as a way of earning righteousness before God. And some from among the church were persuaded. Uh, Paul has to say in chapter 3, verse 9, to these believers that he, now as a Christian, has the following attitude. He wants to be found in Christ, and he says, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And he writes this to Philippian Christians because some of them were trying to establish a righteousness before God through their own obedience to the law. 
no longer through faith in Christ alone, but through faith in Christ plus obedience to the law of Moses. And that leads to uncertainty, of course. How much obedience is enough? How much, how much righteousness can you produce on your own? And if you're uncertain about whether it's Christ who gives you righteousness or you produce it yourself ultimately, well then you're, you're very center, the very foundation in, in your, in your being, your center of your being, so to speak, of your identity is shaken. It's unstable. You won't experience then a, a reordering of your loves and priorities in your life where you can now say, all my needs are taken care of in Christ. I've received by, by faith in Jesus everything I need, forgiveness and righteousness, and now I can serve others. No, when you're still trying to produce your own righteousness, in whatever measure, you, you can no longer selflessly, simply in love, serve others. And so there was a lack of personal confidence in Christ that led, led to a lack of unity and lack of humility on the part of Christians in Philippi. And Paul deals in this passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, brilliantly with that problem. He shows them the excellency of Christ, shows them Jesus, points them to Christ above all, that Jesus valued us so much that he gave up his life in order to provide for our needs, and that Jesus is worth the alienation from your community. And Paul especially stresses this, that, that an inextricable part of Jesus' excellency is his humility. Part and parcel of the excellency of our Savior is his humility, his humble character that he displayed for your sake. You can't separate them, Christ's excellency, his majesty, and his humility. And Paul knew then that if Philippians saw Christ's humility toward them, then they would embrace him by faith, and, and embracing him and loving him would also seek to imitate his humility. That's why he says to them, let the mind of Christ be in you, and then goes on to describe the mind of Christ. And we see Jesus' humility, uh, first of all, in Jesus' willingness to part with what is his by right. Jesus showed humility in that he was willing to part with what was his by right. Now, what was his by right? We read in verse 6, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And perhaps, just like in, in my uh, uh, copy of the Bible here, you have a footnote in verse 6 that, that tells you this word robbery um, can also be trans translated like this. Jesus uh, did not consider equality with God um, something to be held on to. Though he was in the form of God, he did not grasp after equality with God, did not hold on to it in a tight-fisted way, insisting that he must always and everywhere be treated and acknowledged as God. And here is what it means. Let's, let's unpack this then, his being in the form of God, and what was it that he was willing to give up? The form of God, what does that, what does that mean? There is uh, a Greek-English lexicon that um, theologians and pastors and students of the Bible um, use. It's called Loanida. Those are the names of the authors. 
What's interesting is that it's a very um, serious uh, lexicon, serious work, but it has um, a liberal theological bent, overall reliable. But for example, translating the word propitiation, it acknowledges that well, the Greek word, obviously, for propitiation, it says, yes, while propitiation, that is satisfying God's wrath, while that was appropriate in some cultures or in some terms in the New Testament, you should no longer speak of propitiation because in the New Testament, God is already on the side of his people. Now, that's false and that's completely wrong. We need reconciliation to God. Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. And this lexicon that is not known for this ardent orthodoxy says form, the form of God, should be understood as the abiding, unchanging nature. So Jesus being in the form of God means that he always had the abiding, unchanging nature of God. It's a statement of his divinity. Form is not just outward shape, but it's the very, very essence. Jesus was fully divine, something that we see later, too, in our passage when the words from Isaiah 45 about the Lord God of Israel are applied to Jesus. God says, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And the Apostle Paul says, one day to Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus is fully God, but he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he didn't everywhere, in every way, insist on being treated as God. Now, of course, he was calling people to faith, but here's here's what, what I mean. Here's what we see in the pages of the Gospels, for example. It was possible during Jesus' days on earth to blaspheme God to his face and not to be immediately struck down dead. It was possible for people to see Jesus and say that he is in cahoots with the devil, that he casts out demons by the power of the evil one. It's possible to laugh in his face, to reject him, and then at the end of the day, go home, have dinner, play with your kids, go to bed, and not wake up in hell. Though he was in the very form of God, though Jesus had the very abiding, unchanging nature of God. He didn't consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. Now, why did Jesus, why did Jesus behave in that way? Why was he not holding on to? Why didn't he everywhere insist that whoever does not acknowledge his divine majesty would be immediately punished and struck dead? Why did he veil his majesty? The closest uh, parallel uh, to this is in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 34. It helps us understand why such glory um, would be veiled. The section beginning at verse 29, the shining face of Moses. When Moses would come down from Mount Sinai after speaking with God, Moses' face shone. It was a reflection of divine glory. And the sight of the reflection of God's glory and the face of Moses was terrifying to people. They they came too close through Moses to the presence of holy and glorious God. So what did Moses do? Now, we read in verse 30, right? When Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. 
So verse 33, we read, And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And again, a little later, verse 35, still in Exodus 34, And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put, a, put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him, to speak with God. Moses veiled a reflection of God's glory so that people wouldn't be afraid to come close to him. Jesus' glory was veiled so that you and I would not be afraid, so that people would not be afraid. Sinners wouldn't be afraid of coming near to our Creator because he's the source of salvation. You see, Moses covered up his face to uh, to cover a reflection of glory. It wasn't his own glory. It was a reflection of God's glory. The glory of Jesus is uncreated. He is fully divine, but he, he veiled it so that we would come near to him, that we would see his love and humility and find in him our, our salvation. How could such humility, how could that not be contagious for a Christian believer? That Jesus displayed such attitude towards people, towards sinners. How could we, how could we not, believing in him, also not seek to, to imitate it? Jesus, Jesus did not hold on to what was his by right, this equality with God. From Jesus' humility too, we, we learn something important for our, our life together. The opposite of humility is conceit, as we already saw, and conceit always sets up barriers between people, considering yourself better than than, yourself, uh, than than others, sets up barriers between you and others. And either you look to your accomplishments or looks or talents or wits or whatever it may be to, to feel better than others. Or maybe this conceit can also show itself in false humility, downplaying the superiority that you do feel to others just so you can, again, feel better about yourself, just simply playing it down. But humility always seeks to remove those barriers between people. It seeks to not make much of social or economic markers. It seeks appropriate nearness to people. Christ sought that nearness to sinners. So Paul says, let this mind be in you, this, this humility of Christ. But Jesus showed his humility not just by giving up what was his by right, but also suffering what he did need to suffer uh, for us. In verse 7, he uh, made himself of no reputation. Literally, he emptied himself. You may also have a, a note in your Bible that this means he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in, in the likeness of man. Oh, it may seem puzzling. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Does it mean that he somehow got rid of some inherently divine attributes in his nature? Um, that he somehow was less than divine when he became a man? Well, Isaiah in, in his prophecy, chapter 53, verse 12, helps us understand this. He speaks of the suffering servant, prophecy about the Messiah, that the Messiah poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He poured out his soul unto death. To say that Jesus emptied himself is to say that he poured himself out unto death. And the rest of the passage, 
in Philippians 2 then unpacks what this emptying of himself, of Jesus, means for us. Emptied means then that Jesus held absolutely nothing back in the saving work that he came to do. So he took on the form of a slave. That's part of how he emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave. And again, that word form is exactly the same one as having the very form of God, which means he's now Lord and servant forever. As fully divine as he's always been before anything ever existed, without beginning and without end, that's how divine Jesus is, how much he is God. Well, our Lord Jesus then, in the same way, took on the form of a servant, the form of a slave, and even now in glory forever, remains a servant of his church. Jesus, as a servant, bond servant, put all of his resources at our service. He gave up unspeakable wealth and power to live without them and die without them. And to be able to do that, he would have to become a man. And he was found in appearance as a man. And that little word found indicates that he didn't become a man just for a short time, but for a really long haul. Even now in glory, Jesus still has a human nature and will forever remain the incarnate Son of God, ascended in human nature. There is now literally a human body in heaven. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ remains a man, and he is there for us, for our good. Even, even in glory, he is still the servant of, of his church, though Lord of all. And then finally, in his greatest act of humility, he what, what emptied already previewed, he poured out his soul unto death. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of, of the cross. That's what obedience to Jesus' mission required of him, the death on the cross. And Jesus willingly did it. Jesus came with, with a mission. There is an important foundation here for a biblical doctrine that Reformed theologians have called the covenant of redemption. Sometimes we, we speak in our churches as if there was only one covenant, but there are, there are a series of covenants in Scripture, and one of them has been called the covenant of redemption. That is, an agreement before the foundation of the world, before the Father and the Son, that the Son would rescue the elect, would rescue sinners, the sacrifice of himself. And this verse here points, this passage points to there being such an agreement, such a covenant. Look at this. Jesus became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, as a reward, the Father highly exalted him. For obedience follows a reward. There is an agreement. Or you may think of John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus says to the Father in prayer, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Father gave the Son work to do, and the Son faithfully accomplished it. Again, points to an agreement, a covenant. Now, why why belabor this point? Because it adds certainty to your salvation. Jesus came. It would have been wonderful enough if he would come as a kind of a spur-of-the-moment, overwhelming decision that he looked upon sinners and, and wanted to pour himself out. But no, the plan of, 
our redemption, what Jesus has done, is an ancient plan, far more ancient than anything we can imagine. It was long ago decreed by Father and the Son with the Spirit's work that the Christ would give himself for us, that he would be obedient to the point of death on a cross. Jesus, Jesus gave himself for us, fulfilling the, the obligation that he took upon himself. And maybe it's possible to look at this in a kind of a detached view and think, now, that's humble. Jesus willingly suffered what he didn't have to suffer. But the Apostle Paul didn't want the Philippians just to, to remain detached and look at this from a distance. He says, Jesus did it for you and for you sitting here. For you, not just to give you a beautiful picture, but for sinners. For you, he laid down his life. To say, I believe in Christ, is to confess that I am saved because of Christ's humility. And even Jesus being acknowledged at his return, at his second coming, as God and Lord over all, is a reward for his humility. It says, therefore, the Father has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Christ's humility, Christ's humility is what our salvation is is based in. And unless you see that Christ's sacrifice did everything for you, you won't be willing to sacrifice for others. We'll never be be willing to generously, truly give of yourself to benefit other people. You'll forever be trying to protect yourself, forever emphasizing that, ah, but people are always out to take advantage of you, aren't they? Rather than emphasizing that God has called you to give of yourself for the sake of others, to open yourself up to others. But if this is Jesus' humility and so it is displayed for us here, then we are called to it too. Have this mind in you. The Apostle Paul really had to to tell the Philippians not only to know and understand it, but then to exhort them, practice this, do this, dear loved ones. Display such humility to, to one another. It's yours in Christ. Therefore, look out now for, for the needs of other people. Sacrifice your personal fulfillment, which usually looks like sacrificing it for the sake of others. And there are many ways in which this matters and a myriad of ways in which this affects our life together in the church. And let me just simply point out uh, one of them. If we don't practice as individuals, as families, as a church, this, this kind of humility of sacrifice for others, then we communicate ultimately that personal happiness is more important than following Christ. One specific area where this this really uh, is, is extremely important in view of um, the rising generation and the future generations is we live in a cultural moment and it only seems to be accelerating this development in which it seems less and less plausible to our young people that you should sacrifice personal sexual fulfillment for Christ's sake. You should sacrifice it and um, and only view sexuality as God's gift within within marriage between one man and one woman. 
it will be harder and harder, culturally speaking, to make a plausible argument. Now, I'm convinced, as you are no doubt, that this is God's will and this is true and good and there are so many ways that we can, we can tell one another how God's design for human sexuality is truly good and beautiful and glorious. And yet, the culture around us makes it less and less plausible. Just look at the billboards, at commercials, turn on the TV, look at books, look at magazines when you go to the store. It becomes less and less plausible to the younger generation that you really should sacrifice sexual fulfillment um, outside of marriage. But if we do not practice humility and sacrifice in other areas, it'll be harder and harder for us to tell our children that they really ought to live for Christ's sake and be sexually pure. Because if we haven't practiced ourselves dying to sin and to our own personal happiness, it'll be harder to exhort others to do the same. But seeing Jesus' excellency, seeing his humility, the humility of his sacrifice, we can begin by faith in him, by faith in his sacrifice, and begin to imitate his humility. So see, see Jesus' character here. Trust in him alone, in his righteousness and his sacrifice, and imitate him and pursue purity and peace and unity in the body of Christ. Amen.